Welcome to the Oscillations Podcast, where we discuss ideas at the intersection of art, technology, and the science of the mind. I'm Brendan Lewis. In the last episode, we listened to Danielle read her series of essays on meaning. Today, I'm going to build upon her ideas with my own series on values. Together, our collection of essays is meant to integrate some of the ideas we've discussed in our previous interviews to foreshadow the themes in our next season. As always, you can find these essays on our Substack, Oscillating Ideas. I encourage the listeners to go and subscribe because you're going to get a lot of content that you can't get anywhere else in the Oscillations ecosystem. Value, part one. Is there room for meaning and value in economics? The closely related concepts of meaning and value are at the heart of everything humans do. There's not a single human action or economic activity that could not be reduced to one or the other. It's somewhat of a mystery, then, why discussions surrounding economics actively avoid these topics. This wasn't always the case. I recently learned, while listening to one of those standout podcast episodes of the year, in which Ezra Klein discussed the life of economist John Maynard Keynes with one of his most thoughtful biographers, Zach Carter. The main thrust of this first 30 minutes focused on the idea of value, highlighting one of the most fascinating, important, and timely discussions that almost nobody seems to be having. Around the same time that the Ballet Ruse was causing riots from Paris to London with their groundbreaking total art, a Cambridge-based group of ascendant philosophers, writers, and academics were getting together to discuss, write about, and live lifestyles emblematic of the pursuit of knowledge and beauty. This group, known as the Bloomsbury, would inspire the works of Virginia Woolf and provide the foundational economic ideas for a young John Maynard Keynes. Central to Bloomsbury thought was the importance of art in all aspects of human life. Like other coteries of young creatives that ignited cultural movements, the Transcendentalists, the Beats, the Pre-Raphaelites, the Hammersmith Socialists, and the Ballet Ruse, to name a few modern examples, the Bloomsbury, as Dorothy Parker put it, quote, lived in squares, painted in circles, and loved in triangles, end quote. The Bloomsbury and the Ballet Ruse overlapped quite a bit. The talent of both groups were coveted by the great Salonieres of the period. But there was more allure to the Bloomsbury intellectuals and creatives than mere association with the latest trends in the avant-garde. The art created by the Ballet Ruse instilled in them a hope for a better future, a tangible and inspiring example of human progress and civilization. Keynes, therefore, came to view art as essential to economics and politics. Art, he reasoned, is both a key ingredient in nation-building and a vital nutrient in the lifeblood of the populace. What is the point of economics and politics without purpose? What good is a rising gross domestic product if nations were not also becoming more beautiful and their people more informed, passionate, educated, and creative? These questions seemed self-evident to Keynes. For this reason, he would have almost certainly felt frustrated with the prevalent perspectives about both economics and creativity today, which often retreat from defining value. Perspectives about art often go further, eschewing any responsibility to mean something or offer any value. These perspectives mirror the current economic dogma. Value agnosticism. Today, the prevalent dogma among economists is to think of economics as the study of free markets. Liberal-leaning economists additionally think about how to prevent total social catastrophe by economic means. What you don't see anywhere along the spectrum is the Keynesian notion that the entire role of economics is to figure out how to build a society that creates opportunities for humans to better themselves. This would require that we make value judgments about what it means to live a good life, which is not something that anyone, at least in public, seems prepared to do anymore. 
Such agnosticism about the value of economic activity can best be summed up by free market economist Milton Friedman in saying, markets are the purest expression of the democratic will. In other words, because the market is the aggregate of all human choice, people's behaviors within it reveal what they want and what they can offer. Government intervention couldn't possibly presume to know what's best for society better than the sum total of all human economic activity. Anyone who presumes to know a better way of spending our time or allocating our personal resources risks being labeled elitist, aristocratic, paternalistic, or condescending. But Keynes was much more than an economist. We might even say his economics were humanist and transcendent in ambition. These ambitions likely originated from his participation in the Bloomsbury as a young man. Keynes spent his young adulthood as an aristocrat, dabbling in the bohemian lifestyle. His network included the likes of Virginia Woolf, E.M. Forster, Ludwig Wittgenstein, Bertrand Russell, and the Parisian avant-garde in the orbit of Gertrude Stein. Keynes would even go on to marry Lydia Lopakova, a dancer who toured with the Ballet Ruse. It's no wonder, then, that Keynes thought as broadly as he did deeply. He pondered over the essential purpose of economics. What is economics for? As Ezra Klein notes, Quote, Keynes understood economics to be subsumed to other values and a vision of another society which it was supposed to serve, end quote. To Keynes, neither economics nor the notion of value were things that could be wholly quantified or mathematized. Keynes argued against values-neutral utilitarianism, which is still very much the way economists and entrepreneurs think today. Klein suggests to his audience, quote, when nobody is quite comfortable with anyone else's definition of utility, what we end up defaulting to in economics and public policy is what I call consumer preferences. Maximum utility is whatever people do with their money when you leave them alone. This strikes some of us as a thin and shallow understanding of what people want out of life. End quote. Keynes wanted an economy that fosters a vibrant, healthy, artistic, and intellectual sphere. Such notions would be echoed decades later in the elevated rhetoric of John F. Kennedy, who stated that art was, quote, central to a nation's purpose, end quote, and who implored citizens to consider what each of us is contributing back to society. This ambition in economic thought seems to have started and ended with Keynes, and its impact on society has reduced to a whimper. But evidence today suggests that Keynesian thinking might actually align more with human motivation and well-being than the current economic dogma. Cognitive science suggests that economics needs to grow up. While the current retreat from making value judgments has become the default framework for economic theory, it is fatally flawed. It assumes that humans are rational agents, that they have free will and use it in their best interests. Over the past half century, cognitive science has demonstrated the opposite. The romantic ideals of human rationality and free will are no longer tenable. Ironically, this modern insight was well understood by marketers a century ago, well before cognitive scientists demonstrated it in their research laboratories. Marketing as a discipline doesn't even pretend that humans make economic decisions of their own agency and accord. It's the whole raison d'etre. It's to manipulate people to consume things that they wouldn't have consumed otherwise. Nowadays, marketers use every tool at their disposal, including the science of reaching us at levels beneath the surface of our conscious awareness. Such scientific mind hacks are the same stuff that make up the algorithms keeping us glued to our mobile devices, wasting our time doom-scrolling, binging, and shitposting all over social media. The idea that the market is the purest expression of the democratic will falls apart entirely when we account for marketing and public relations, which its founder Edward Bernays baldly called propaganda before the word became tainted by dictatorial political regimes. Democratic process is defined by free participation. 
Yet marketing and public relations explicitly aim to undermine free choice. We say an election is undemocratic when people have been manipulated into making decisions against their will or better judgment, either by force or propagandic coercion. Given the pervasive relationship between economics and marketing, shouldn't we also then say that current economics are undemocratic? Economist John Kenneth Galbraith, who in some ways could be seen as a successor to Keynes, argued exactly this in his critique of marketing. If we value human well-being and flourishing, then it appears that not only is there room for meaning and value in economics, but that it is imperative that we establish a set of values and shared meaning. Not doing so is itself reflective of a value, the prioritization of profit over human well-being and flourishing. So the question now becomes what those values should be. If human well-being and flourishing is our ultimate goal, then what should we optimize for? Value part two. What are we optimizing for? In his book, The Assault on American Excellence, Anthony Cronman launches a measured and polished attack on what he sees as a form of populist relativism with regard to how we live our lives. In his anachronistic defense of aristocracy, he manages an astute observation and a well-reasoned warning. The democratic will sucks. Cronman suggests that in our admirable adherence to the liberal values of pluralism, inclusivity, and the individual rights and liberties that are meant to confer an equal measure of dignity to all citizens under the eyes of the law, we have begun to err in our application of these values to domains of life where they are ill-suited. In other words, we conflate democratic or political equality with a more general equality in all things. This, Cronman argues, is a mistake and one that is plain to see. As the title of this book suggests, Cronman focuses on excellence and points out that if we're being honest with ourselves, it's plain to see in many areas of life where we would almost instinctually or reflexively make value judgments all the time. Nobody calls into question that Olympians are better athletes than hobbyists. Nobody disputes the value of apprenticeships. Nobody would go so far as to claim that a college education imparts no discernible value to a student. If we concede that some people are better informed, better equipped, and some skills are better practice, or some things are better built than others. Why do we get so non-committal with value? It is remarkable to Cronman that we feel as though it is a cringy thing to ask if there are better and worse ways of living our lives. On the one hand, we are quick to lament and pity the squandered potential of someone in the throes of a drug addiction, but we get squeamish when asked to juxtapose a middle-aged adult with no social life who plays video games all day against a doctor who devotes years to Doctors Without Borders, a world-class violinist, or a scientist devoted to solving climate change or curing cancer. Cronman is not alone. Recently, there has been a steady stream of books imploring us to consider the negative impact on society this conflation has cost us. While Cronman aims to restore some measure of respect for the Adamsonian idea of aristocracy, others refer to this, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, as a defense of elitism, or less controversially, expertise. What these books have in common is the observation that, along with political populism, we have seen an erosion of trust in experts of all kinds. In some cases, this may be entirely justified. Consider the bankers to whom we entrusted the health of the global economy, yet who continue to play their perpetual game of Russian roulette with risky assets. In other cases, however, we risk losing more by not paying heed to the experts. If we don't heed the warnings of climate scientists and public health experts, the consequences, as we have seen, will be catastrophic. While perhaps not existential threat-level catastrophic, it is still a tragic loss to civilization that some of the world's best artists struggle to earn a lower middle-class income and create retirement security for themselves, while 
preteens doing silly dances are earning nine figures and launching lipstick lines. It's heartbreaking that engineers expending all their cognitive capital redesigning some popular app's like button for a year are regularly taking mental health days and weekends in Tahoe, while academics studying human history or the inner workings of the human brain or painting an ever more complex and vital picture of the planet's ecosystems are struggling to move beyond unstable poverty line postdoctoral positions while their universities contemplate doing away with tenure. If this is the purest expression of the democratic will, then the democratic will sucks. If this free market activity is an a priori form of good, then I want to live in a bad society full of elitists pursuing knowledge and beauty. I want fellow citizens who spend their lives in service of a more enlightened society, not simply a more efficient, connected, and convenient one. I want to connect this idea of excellence and expertise to economic activity. When extended to economic thinking, the conflation of political equality with a broadly relativistic approach to human consumption and economic activity defaults to a libertarian free market agnosticism about what it means to live a good life and contribute value to society. The logic goes, if the markets reward it, it's good. We have privatized and individualized tastes and divorced the economic activity of individuals from their communities. The flaws in this logic become apparent when we consider the following example. It becomes impossible to look at a worn-down strip mall and say, what an ugly use of space, for that strip mall is somebody's economic activity and it is therefore good. The market does not account for the residential units across the street whose windows look out on it and whose locals walk by the strip mall every day silently suffering the indignity of such monuments to social immobility and class stratification. The market solution is that people must simply save to move somewhere more pleasant and vote for a more beautiful world with their dollars. If there are ugly places in the world, it is because some people must value them enough in some mysterious way. Presto, absolution of responsibility by an invisible hand attached to a vaporous nothing. The critique that many towns in America have been robbed of their uniqueness, made up as they are of the same 20 chain stores, falls on deaf ears, for that is the market at work, and so it must be inherently good. What is lost is an aspirational culture rich with talent and meaning. It is why movies haven't much mortalized since the 90s. It's why we encourage the young to take up hobbies, not to become excellent or achieve mastery that others can appreciate and learn from, but rather to express themselves as if self-expression is valuable without the requisite enrichment that inspires things worth expressing in the first place. What is missing is depth. Depth can only occur with sufficient enrichment and purpose. Purpose born from curiosity and motivation to learn only happens when we can connect new ideas to the things we already know. If we do not sufficiently feed the mind with ideas, it will be unable to generate new permutations of ideas, and communication is limited to gossip and talk of the weather. As the epigram sometimes misattributed to Eleanor Roosevelt goes, small minds discuss people, average minds discuss events, great minds discuss ideas. If this quip makes you cringe, it is a sign of the times and precisely what I mean when I lament along with John Maynard Keynes that society is afraid to make value judgments. The thing is, this isn't casting judgment in the negative sense. Rather, I find this encouraging because all humans have the innate capacity to enrich their minds, to be the sorts of minds that are comfortable exploring the world of ideas. It is only when we pretend to be agnostic as a matter of misguided politeness or intellectual evasiveness that we rob large swaths of society the chance to explore their full potential. 
It is only when we are unwilling to discourage a child from sinking six hours a day into video games or mobile phone usage and similarly unwilling to encourage or nudge them into more enriching activities that we stifle their creativity, intellect, and future contributions to society. Some libertarians have negotiated the difference between free market radicalism and government interventionism with the idea of nudge theory, which is most often associated with the economist Richard Thaler. Nudge theory contains the idea of choice architecture, which begins by conceding that in refusing to make a choice, you are in fact making a choice. For example, if you are arranging a school lunch line for young children and you arrange the food randomly, giving children the freedom to choose whatever they like, the order in which the food is randomly placed will still affect the children's choices. If the sweets are placed first, the children are far more likely to make poor dietary choices. Therefore, your decision not to make a choice is still making a choice. Such behavioral economists acknowledge that human agency is, at the very least, not sufficient to explain human choices. Nudge theory encourages consideration of choice architecture in economic and public policy decision-making. Choice architecture applies to the idea of value as well. In a society where we shy away from making value judgments when organizing and evaluating economic activity, the absence of a choice is still a choice, and that choice is free market idealism. If we want, as Keynes did, an aspirational society with a rich, creative, and intellectual life, we simply have to become comfortable with making value judgments about what constitutes a good life beyond what the market rewards with money, power, and attention. The turning point in the United States that took American society from ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, to every man for himself, was probably the Ronald Reagan presidency and the theory of Reaganomics. This period in history saw the beginnings of highly individualized and targeted lifestyle consumerism. It marks the formative years of self-esteem and self-psychology, where ideas from the fringes of psychotherapy-infused hippie and new age cultures began to work its way into mainstream culture in a commodified and entrepreneurial format. It was the dawn of big hedge funds performing leveraged buyouts, known more infamously as corporate rating. The prevailing economic and political theories mirrored the decoupling of selfhood from society. The United Kingdom had their own Ronald Reagan and Reaganomics. England's prime minister at the time, Margaret Thatcher, had a very Reagan-esque conservatism that is perhaps best summed up by her proclamation, there is no such thing as society. In this worldview, there's no such thing as a shared society or culture. There are just people working to advance their own interests. In order to function, this view relies on conceiving human beings as rational economic actors and the individual human self as an island. Modern research psychology has made short work of such shallow, naive, and simplistic conceptualizations of a person, but such academic correction is not necessary. It's simply plain to see from every conceivable vantage that humans are a social species that flourishes when it practices interdependence and cooperation. Humans are not snow leopards. We thrive as individuals only insofar as we have a stable society to thrive in. Looking around at the homeless encampments in San Francisco, one wonders what the point of all that power and wealth is if society is crumbling around it. Humans achieve justice and equality together, not as individuals. We find purpose in our lives only in relation to others. No innovation, no act of creativity, nothing we can do as individuals has any meaning or value without a society to share it with. Thatcherism and Reaganomics were really the nail in the coffin of the Kennedy and Johnson era of progressive liberalism and the Keynesian idea that it is the government's responsibility to invest in the betterment of its citizens. 
Now the role of the government has been diminished to merely providing stability through military protection, law enforcement, and whatever the bare minimum policy is that will prevent a populist uprising and keep the economy humming along. Reagan and Thatcher didn't have disdain for the arts per se. Reagan, after all, was an actor before he was a politician. Still, neither saw it as the role of the state to provide funding for the arts. The idea was anathema to them that some bureaucrats with art history degrees and years of government service in the arts should be deciding what art receives patronage and what languishes in obscurity. This is the job of the free market. Let the arts compete. Let private sectors sort it out. This is a far cry from Kennedy's art is central to a nation's purpose and creativity is the hardest work there is. The Kennedy administration turned the White House into a salon for poets and playwrights, musicians and painters. The Keynesian tradition of economics and politics serving the human pursuit of beauty and knowledge understands that art and culture are public goods to be nurtured and protected like our natural resources. Moreover, a robust arts and creative culture is the primary symptom of a well-managed body politic. It is the whole point of building a society in the first place, beauty and knowledge. Consider the world of Star Trek The Next Generation. This sci-fi future explains what the world would look like if we achieved peace among humans and other advanced humanoids, and we solved for the economic problems of scarcity and unemployment. What do humans do? They explore the galaxy pursuing knowledge for its own sake, and then they retire to their chambers at the end of the day to study music, crafts, visual arts, read, and reenact classic literature in the holodeck. Isn't this where progressive politics is supposed to take us? Isn't this why we pursue macroeconomics and why we have a political process? What possible future could be better than this? The free market has no use for something so abstract as the pursuit of knowledge and beauty. Prices of things are the only important information, and if a price cannot be discerned, it is irrelevant. Free markets cannot accomplish anything more significant than commercialized art, usually on a mission to sell something. Art in society suffers from what economics call the tragedy of the commons, where everyone has access to something free of any rules or gatekeepers governing its access, use, and stewardship of the resource. What results from a tragedy of the commons is that each economic actor acts in their best interests and contrary to the good of all users. The arts suffer under free markets in the same way that the environment does. Free market actors tend to externalize the costs onto the public. In the case of the environment, we get pollution. In the case of art, we get bad art, commercial art, or no art at all. Left to the free market, we get art that best sells things, or art that is controversial enough to capture the public's attention and enjoy a brief moment in the spotlight. Social media is amplifying this tragedy of the commons. Our art and culture reflect these prevailing political notions that have set up shop rent-free in our subconscious. The technology platforms where art and culture are created and shared are designed around the shallow features of an empty free market individualism. For all the bombast from companies like Facebook around, quote, bringing the world together, the user experience is engineered to broadcast the empty self. Even features ostensibly designed for community building, such as Facebook's groups, are more often places where people go to opine, argue, shitpost, and show off than where they are to go build something of lasting value together. While rethinking first principles of social media and how redesigning could improve the state of things, the platforms aren't entirely to blame here. Our technology reflects back to us our emptiness and lack of ambition because we as a culture refuse to make value judgments about how people spend their time. We no longer collectively imagine a better society, much less manifest the ambition to build it. We have no universalist, pluralistic vision for the future. Instead, we conceived of politics as a free market, zero-sum competition for power and attention by individuals and special interest groups. 
Our political ethos has in turn infected our creative culture and the technology platforms where we go to express our creativity. Our political ethos has in turn infected our creative culture, and the technology platforms where we go to express our creativity reflect this free market individualism in their very design, a brutal competition for power and attention. The winners of this game are those willing to play to the algorithm's preference for the polarizing, the sensational, the controversial, and novelty for its own sake. And on the other hand, algorithms are not designed to reward depth, complexity, hard work, diligence, dedication, excellence, or ethics. If it cannot be reduced to something pithy or otherwise possessing a viral potential, it is deprioritized. The platforms claim to be agnostic. They are not publishers. They are simply a reflection of humanity. If you don't like what you see, you must not like humanity. What a grumpy Luddite you must be. But choice architecture reminds us that not making a choice is still a choice. The choice we are making is to design for a regression to the mean, a mediocrity, a race to the bottom. Perhaps it is swimming upstream to expect the human species to become masters of their own evolutionary programming, nurturing in themselves a civic orientation towards a cooperative society rather than a competitive one. At Oscillations, we believe the neuroscience shows otherwise. Humans are highly plastic and capable of doing much more exceptional things than we have yet done. Human behavior is context-dependent, not fixed. We are both exploitative and cooperative, depending on what situation we find ourselves in. If we build a better society, our behavior will change for the better. Perhaps it is elitist to imagine a more beautiful world full of people motivated to cultivate deep, rich inner lives full of wonder and ideas. But if we are not striving for this, what the hell are we even doing and why are we doing it? 